Your home. 
Welcome back to church. So wonderful to have you joining with us again. We have just a few announcements. The first of all is that the men's brunch is on December the 5th, 10 a.m. for 10.30 start. So this will be a lovely time outside. Bring a chair with you and uh, just enjoy some time, some fellowship with some, some friends and invite a mate along. Uh, it be a great opportunity 
to, uh, to share in some fellowship and uh, to just to spend some time together encouraging each other. So come along to the Men's Brunch, December 5th, 10 a.m. for 10.30. Uh, I've also got a really exciting announcement today that we're going to have a Christmas Eve service here at the church. We're going to do it picnic style outside. So it's going to be 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. here at the church. BYO everything. And we'll just have an informal carol service uh, with, a, with a, uh, a message for, for Christmas. So I encourage you, why not invite friends, family along to something like that? It's going to be outside. It's going to be uh, very casual. It's going to be very relaxed. It's going to be fairly informal. And so a great opportunity uh, for you to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ this Christmas. So that's Christmas Eve, Thursday, 24th of December, here at the church, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And uh, we've got a special treat. Um, I've got some, some musical family members coming and they're going to help us out too. So uh, that's going to be just a really nice time uh, to share together in, uh, in lovely time Christmas Eve as our Christmas service. Uh, we are hoping that there will be announcements today regarding restrictions easing. Of course, at time of recording, um, this service, we don't know what they are or when they will be. Uh, so look out for an email this week outlining what we'll be doing um, and when we can do that. Uh, so uh, I just encourage you, if that means we can be at church next week, then be here. Enjoy time with your fellow um, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I'd like to pray for you now uh, as we, uh, just before we head into the sermon this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blessings that are abundant, your, your grace and mercy that is clear, and the Lord that you, you do care for us in, in amazing ways. Lord, we thank you for the provision that you, you, you bless us with. We thank you that we can still meet uh, together and pray together like, like we do Wednesday mornings at 10 and fellowship together at 10.30. Pray that you would bless the meetings of our small groups as they continue uh, at this time. Lord, I pray that you bless the, the meeting of, of the men's brunch and that you bless our Christmas service. Lord, we thank you that your grace abounds. And we thank you that, Lord, you look after those with whom you care for in special ways, those that have responded to the gospel, Lord, those that you call your own, that are heirs with Christ. And so we thank you for the blessings that we receive from your, the sacrifice of your son who paid the penalty for our sins so that we can have that sure and certain hope in eternity with you. And right now, Lord, I ask that you open our hearts and minds to hear from your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is this great memorable scene in, in the, the Disney Pixar animated movie, The Incredibles, where Bob, also known as Mr. Incredible, returns home from work and sees this kid on a tricycle out the front of his house. And he asks the kids, what are you waiting for? And the kid answers, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. You know, in many ways, this kid reflects a deep inner desire that I believe we all have not to be unremarkable. 
in the ordinary and mundane existence that we sometimes feel that we are just surviving through rather than thriving in, I think many of us are searching for something remarkable, something amazing, something that may inspire us and propel us forward. The unremarkable, however, is all too common. And as we continue our series in the book of Judges, God's grace in a selfish world, we see how even some judges are unremarkable. Today we'll be going through the account of six judges. That's, that's half of them. But don't worry, it's not going to be a super long sermon because the accounts of five of them are really brief. Their first account is the account of Tola. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Azekar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. Absolutely nothing remarkable about Tola. He acted as judge for 23 years and did nothing other than keep the peace during that time. He didn't win any great battles. He just kept the status quo. Unremarkable. Then we have Jair, or Jair, as I'm going to call him. Verse 3. After him arose Jair, the Galeadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities called havoth Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Camon. Jair is a little bit different to Tola. Jer was, was very wealthy and successful. He sent his 30 sons to each city to rule over them. But his influence was local at best. He acted as a judge for 22 years and, and he too did absolutely nothing remarkable. What we see from this account of Jair is prosperity without purpose, affluence without influence and prestige without power. Unremarkable. Then in chapter 12, we have the accounts of three more judges. So turn over to chapter 12. Verses 8 to 10, we find the first judge, Ibzan. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. Ibzan was a skilled and wealthy politician. He used his marriages of his daughters and sons to shore up his political power with 30 other town, cities, regions. But his time as judge was quite short, just seven years. And he too accomplished absolutely nothing remarkable. He was just like Jer. He displayed prosperity without purpose, affluence without influence and prestige without power unremarkable. 
Verse 11. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. Elon too was unremarkable. He judged ten years, then died, and did nothing other than keep the peace. Unremarkable. Verse 13. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died as, and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Abdon was the wealthiest of these judges recorded for us. He, he ruled eight years and did, you guessed it, absolutely nothing remarkable. But what is evident is that even the leaders of Israel are becoming more and more influenced by the nations surrounding them. We see continuing tendencies in Israel toward the lifestyle of the surrounding pagan nations and away from fidelity to God and his law. How did these judges have 30 sons, 40 sons, 30 grandsons? Well, that was, of course, through polygamy. They adopted the practices of the nations around them rather than being faithful to the Lord and obeying his instruction and will. And in the middle of these groups of unremarkable judges who are mostly concerned for their own personal wealth and political influence, rather than leading the nation in faithfulness to God, is Jephthah. And Jephthah arrives at a time of unrest as the people of Israel are yet again disobedient and suffering oppression. And as expected, following the downward spiral, it's getting worse. And they are being oppressed from all sides. In chapter 10, we are given numerous gods the Israelites served while forsaking the Lord. And God's anger burned towards Israel and he gave them into the hands of many enemies on all sides. And the Lord says this to them in verse 13 of chapter 10. He says, You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. God says to his people, I will save you no more. Such is the state of the nation of Israel and their complete apostasy as they abandon God and serve the gods of the people around them. You know, listed in this passage are, are seven groups worshipped, you know, seven groups of deities. And that, that indicates that the totality of the Israelites' apostasy. They serve every God occupying every pantheon in every nation around them. The only deity that they fail to serve, ironically, is the true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Yet God is gracious. People are selfish, but God is gracious. And he is merciful to those 
who repent of their sin. Verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of the Israelites. God is merciful and gracious towards his people, and following their confession of sin and repentance, God's love for his people is again on display. He shows that he still cares for them as he grows impatient with their oppression. God shows that he both loved Israel loyally and yet found it necessary to discipline them. God displays tough love for Israel just as a parent is called to do for their children to help them become the best person they can be. And God does the same for his people and he disciplines us too. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 to 8 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the, Lord's discip the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. See, many people do not understand this. Many people see discipline and rebuke as unloving and uncaring opposition to them personally. But true love for your children means that parents will discipline their children to teach, train, correct and help them flourish. You know, I think one of the most unloving things that a parent can do to their children is to not discipline them. It is to not care enough for them, to not care enough for your children that you fail to discipline, to not care enough to correct them, to not care enough to train them in good behaviour, values and character. Disciplining your children is not easy. Children do not like discipline. They fight against it. And so it is hard to discipline your kids, but it is one of the most loving things that you can do for them. It is worth the struggle. And kids, listen to me. Your parents always have your best interests at heart. They always want the best for you. So when they discipline you, they are doing that because they love you. When your parents are correcting you, they are doing so out of the love that they have for you. If they didn't love you, they wouldn't care. So parents, be encouraged to keep loving your children and speaking into their lives no matter how old you or they are, saying what needs to be said, doing what needs to be done because you love them and want the best for them. 
Don't shy away from the tough love that sometimes needs to be dealt out, just like God did with Israel. It is loving, gracious and merciful to love and discipline. And that's what God does here in chapter 10 of Judges with Israel. But the people they then begin to search, having you know, confessed of their sin and repented, they then begin to search for someone to lead them in battle. They search for a new judge to rule over them. But they do not wait upon the Lord for this. They themselves set about finding the person. You know, rather than inquiring of God for strategy, the Israelites and their leaders looked among themselves for a human leader whom they could persuade to lead them by promising him kingship as a reward. Unfortunately, they were rejecting God's authority over them by doing this. They display a lack of faith in the Lord, a lack of trust in the Lord, and instead employ human scheming to find their deliverer. Judges chapter 11, verse 1 to 3. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Jephthah was a mighty warrior. But the circumstances of his birth further demonstrate the decay of Israelite society. His legitimate half-brothers drive him out, and so Jephthah fled to Israel's frontier on the edge of civilization. Tob, well, it stood between Ammon and Syria, northeast of Gilead. And there he finds himself surrounded by what the ESV calls worthless fellows. But the Hebrew term that's translated here as worthless fellows is more accurately translated adventurers. If you've got an NIV, you'll probably find it translated like that there. These men were not necessarily evil, but they were wild. Jephthah evidently lived, you know, a, a Robin Hood style of existence, like the life of David, that, that David lived after he fled from Saul. Then the Ammonites make war against Israel. The elders of Gilead, who, who once stood by and watched as Jephthah was run out of town, now went to find him, to bring him back to be their leader and to lead their fight against the Ammonites. Jephthah was such a gifted warrior that when the Ammonites threatened Gilead, these wise elders, the elders of that, that region, they overcame their personal dislike for Jephthah. They humbled themselves and begged him to defend them. Now, this story reminds me of a theme that is quite common in Westerns. You know, the townsfolk drive the young misfit out who's grown up among them, but because of, you know, his love of guns and violence, it, it makes them uneasy, so they drive him out of town. However, when a gang of outlaws threatens the town, 
they send for this gun, gunslinger to, to save them. And so this mighty warrior, once rejected, is now asked to return to save the very people that rejected him. Jephthah, of course, makes them eat a bit of humble pie and then accepts their appointment as head and leader over them. And it's here that he displays two characteristics. The first is this, Jephthah is a man of faith. Jephthah speaks of the Lord more than any other judge. He acknowledges that if he defeated the Ammonites, it would be because the Lord gave them over to him. He also prays to the Lord. He's a man of, of, of great faith. But Jephthah is also a, a competent negotiator. We just see if you read through that passage, Jephthah negotiates with the elders of Gilead to be their leader. What's very telling about this account is that God does not raise up this judge. The people search for a man that they think is competent and they then negotiate acceptable terms. Where is God in this complex process of engaging Jephthah? Far from playing the decisive role as he had in the provision of all the other judges so far, God is relegated to the role of silent witness to a purely human contract between desperate people and an ambitious candidate. From verse 12 onwards of chapter 11, we see that Jephthah does not rush into battle, but wisely tried to peaceably settle the Ammonites' grievances with Israel. His approach reveals his humility as well as his wisdom and again displays his great negotiating skills. See, most men would have wanted to demonstrate their prowess in battle to, to impress the ones that had expressed confidence in them and to guarantee their future security with a victory. However, Jephthah displays great restraint. He appeals to the king of Ammon very logically through messengers. He initiated peace talks rather than launching a war. He negotiates. He recounts the history between the two nations, highlighting that the Ammonites have no claim under current conventions, emphasising the past victory of God over their gods, which gifted them the land previously. He elicits local examples of other kings' submission to these land rights and, and refusal to challenge God, Yahweh God. And he calls upon God to be the judge here as well. His main point behind his argument was that the Ammonites had no right in Israel's territory east of the Jordan that they were trying to obtain by force. Judges chapter 11, verse 28. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. He's basically saying, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good, good points you have there, but I don't care. We're coming. This great negotiator, Jephthah, could not defuse the situation. And so in verse 29, God's spirit then clothed or came upon Jephthah, giving the promise 
of divine enablement and victory in the approaching encounter with the Ammonite army. Jephthah travelled throughout Gilead in the tribal territory of Gad and eastern Manasseh to the north recruiting soldiers. He next led his troops back to Mizpah in Gilead and then finally eastward into Ammon to face the Ammonites in battle. Judges chapter 11 verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighbourhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. See, making vows, vowing to God, was always voluntary in Israel. God never required a person to make a vow to him. Jephthah did not need to make this vow. And this vow truly was a mistake. Nevertheless, he promised that if the Lord would give him victory, he would give whatever came out of the door of his house when he returned from the conflict. He would offer this person or animal either as a sacrifice of dedication to the Lord or as a burnt offering of worship. The making of the vow is an act of unfaithfulness. Jephthah desires to bind God rather than embrace the gift of the Spirit. What comes to him freely, he seeks to earn and manipulate. The meaning of his words is doubt, not faith. It is control, not courage. And God does, of course, give Jephthah great victory which should be expected since he was clothed in the spirit. He chases the Ammonites and subdues them. Jephthah is a faithful leader and leads his nation to victory. But his way with words, his negotiations and vows are simply human in every sense of the word. There's no foresight. There is simply the attempt to needlessly bargain with God to ensure victory that was already assured. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancers. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. His negotiations with the elders, his diplomacy with the Ammonites, and his vow have all amply displayed Jephthah's facility with words. 
Jephthah, we know, is, is good at opening his mouth. How ironic when his name literally means he opens. What has precipitated this crisis with his daughter is that he has opened his mouth to God. He has tried to conduct his relationship with God in the same way that he has conducted his relationships with men. He has debased religion into politics and suffers great consequences for doing so. Jephthah's vow reveals that he had a rather unenlightened concept of God. His commitment to the Lord was strangely strong, but his understanding of, of God was not scriptural. He either did not know what the law revealed about God or else had forgotten. His concept of God bears the marks of Canaanite influence. His belief that he needed to bargain with or bribe God in order to get him to bless his people was unfortunate. He also believed that God took pleasure in what hurts people, that God is somehow sadistic. That idea is also inaccurate and pagan. And furthermore, he believed that God might even abandon him before he finished his battle. But God had promised that he would not do this as long as his people trusted and obeyed him. Jephthah made his tragic vow because he did not have a scriptural view of God. He should have instead vowed to offer the inhabitants of the cities he would conquer as sacrifices to God. And you see, Jephthah demonstrates that he believed he could not get out of his vow. Unfortunately, he did not know or, or had forgotten that God had made provisions for his people to redeem things they had vowed to give him. Leviticus chapter 27 verses 1 to 8 instructed the Israelites that if they vowed something to God and they wanted it back, they could pay a stated ransom price and buy it back. Had he obeyed the word of God, he would have avoided sacrificing his daughter. You know, with his vow, he sought to secure the present, a victory in battle. But through it, he ended up sacrificing his future, his daughter, his only child. And this is yet another example in Judges of self-assertion, selfishness, leading to violence. And in this case, that violence is directed towards a young woman. And we see the failures of Jephthah laid open. Up to verse 33 recorded are his victories, but the rest of his account openly lays out for us his failures, beginning with the unnecessary and unwanted sacrifice of his daughter, and it continues with civil war. So following Jephthah's victory in chapter 12, the Ephraimites, another tribe of, of Israel, accused Jephthah of not inviting them to battle as they missed out on plunder and glory and vowed to burn Jephthah's house. But Jephthah opened his mouth wisely again and replied that he had indeed requested their help, but they had not responded. This did not satisfy the Ephraimites 
however, who mobilized a large fighting force to teach the Gileadites a lesson. So the Ephraimites thought that they were superior. And so they were offended. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this exactly what happened with Gideon as well? Only Jephthah is not Gideon. He doesn't flatter them as Gideon had. Jephthah fights. And in the battle that followed east of the Jordan, 42,000 Ephraimites suffered defeat. A high price for jealousy. The Gileadites stopped the rebel Ephraimites who tried to flee back home. And the sad reality is that Jephthah treated his own brothers, the Ephraimites, as he had dealt with Israel's enemy, the Ammonites. He unleashed his zeal and took vengeance far out of proportion to what might have been legitimate. So what can we learn from judges today? Well, first, don't settle for the unremarkable. Don't just try and keep the status quo or, or try to just keep the peace or, or try to just maintain what exists and that which is comfortable. Don't settle for wealth and prosperity in place of great victory for God. Take risks in faithfulness and obedience to God. You know, at the end of that Pixar movie, The Incredibles, that little boy is again out on the street. Yet he witnesses an amazing scene as the bad guy is sucked into a plane's jet engine, which falls to the ground and explodes directly on top of Mr. Incredible and his incredible family. And as the dust settles and the smoke clears, revealing our heroes protected and alive and well, the little kid screams out excitedly, that was wicked. He saw something amazing. He saw something incredible. He saw something remarkable. And it is amazing what can be done when we too take risks in faithfulness and obedience to God. Don't settle for prosperity without purpose, affluence without influence, and prestige without power. These are things our world searches for and things they value. Prosperity, affluence, and prestige. But wouldn't it be better to live life, to live for a purpose, to be a positive influence, and to live by the power of the Spirit? Don't settle for the unremarkable. You know, this week we just ticked over one year from the launch of our new vision as a church. Our vision doesn't allow us to settle for the unremarkable because we exist to bring glory to God and the hope of the gospel to the northeast as we make disciples through authentic worship vibrant family, gospel-centred growth and joyful service. And whilst COVID has chucked a spanner in the works for many of the things that we were hoping to accomplish this year, our calling has not changed. We have been called to accomplish the remarkable for God. 
to bring glory to God and, and the hope of the gospel to the northeast. We're not here as a church just to maintain the status quo or to keep the peace. We are called to take risks in faithfulness and obedience to God. You know, I'm hoping that today there will be an announcement which means we can return to church in the extremely near future. And that means that we can fellowship together again as vibrant family when, when that occurs. But remember, the purpose for which our church exists is the mission of Jesus Christ, to bring glory to God and the hope of the gospel. So when we can return, what a perfect opportunity to invite your friends, family and neighbours along to church. What a great opportunity to take the risk and, and actually step out in faith and obedience and share the hope you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and accompany that with an invitation and welcome to our family. For our Christmas service this year, we will be holding a Christmas Eve service here at church. It will be a different way to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Saviour. We will have a casual informal picnic style service outside and it will be BYO everything. This will maximise the number of people that may be able to attend and it will be a great atmosphere to invite friends, family and neighbours along to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ in a casual and informal atmosphere. So make it a priority to invite someone along. You know, that is one step that you can make towards not settling for the unremarkable. Don't settle for the unremarkable, particularly this year in the lead up to Christmas. And second, be available to God. Here in this account of Jephthah, we see that God uses a leader not only with suspect origins who ascends to power under dubious circumstances through his negotiating skills, but also a leader who participates in a pagan practice, child sacrifice, and participates in the massacre of fellow northern tribesmen of Israel. He is far from being the poster boy of biblical heroes. Jephthah was a valiant warrior, but because of his tragic family life, he had to become strong to survive. The story of his life is of God taking the strong man and by his spirit, turning him into a usable man. Whatever our strengths and weaknesses, the secret of our usefulness is our availability to God. And when we make ourselves available to God, what we're saying is, God, I choose to trust you and obey. The secret to Jephthah's success was his essential trust in and obedience to God. This is always the key to spiritual success. His life teaches us that God can and does use people with tough backgrounds. 
when we look at all God's children, even just in our own congregation, we see many varied and many tough backgrounds. God does not produce his instruments with a cookie cutter or mass produce them on an assembly line. Each one is different. He even uses people whom others reject because of their family situations or lifestyles. God prepares his tools throughout their lives and uses everything in their backgrounds to equip them to conduct a unique ministry for himself. The key aspect of being available to God is displayed through trusting him unconditionally and obeying unreservedly. And it doesn't mean we'll always get it right. We will at times fail just like Jephthah. Jephthah's, Jephthah's failure was ignorance of or, or inattention to God's word. In scripture, we see Satan attack individuals. And when he does, he tries to get people to doubt, deny, disobey or disregard what God has said. And so to stand up under attack, it is important to know, remember and obey the word of God. When we are available to God, we open ourselves up to spiritual attack and are vulnerable because we're not going to settle for the unremarkable. We want to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And so to stand up under attack, we need to know, remember and obey the word of God. And so don't let the threat or fear of attack stop you from being available to God. Don't allow yourself to settle for the unremarkable, but instead declare that you will trust and obey the Lord and be available to God for whatever he calls you to. And so I would now encourage you to, to sing a song of dedication. It's an old hymn, one that many will know well. Trust and obey.
many ways, I really do hope that uh, this is the last uh, of these church at home services in this format that we will be bringing. Uh, I really do hope that uh, we will be meeting back together face to face uh, very soon. Uh, but uh, if that isn't um, next Sunday, we will let you know when that is. Um, so look out for emails. Uh, it may require you to book in advance to come to church because we may be restricted by numbers. Um, but we don't, I don't know any of that yet. So keep a look out for your emails. But what we would like you to do is to actually make a commitment that you will indeed trust and obey the Lord and that you will trust that when it is uh, able to um, when, when church is able to return, that you will too, that you will trust and obey that it is right and good and healthy for you to come. Uh, many of you would have been out and about doing different things. Uh, so I'd encourage that church be another one of those. So trust and obey in all that the Lord has in store for us as a church in the near future. And uh, please uh, return when we can. Uh, I'm not holding out too many hopes but I'm holding out a little bit of hope. Uh, so I'd love to see uh, you at church as soon as we can uh, be back together. You know, one thing I think that has been good is that um, in this time, um, I, I definitely uh, just thank the Lord for the blessings that He has bestowed upon us in being able to do church in this way, to be able to, to use technology in a way that, that glorifies Him and that, uh, that, that brings the hope of the gospel to many more people than we normally even have here at church on a Sunday. But one thing that we do have to do is make sure that we, we take hold of those opportunities that present themselves to us. And so if we never have to do this style of church again, I will be overjoyed. But I'm so also thankful that for this season, we've been able to do this. And so uh, it's been a great encouragement to be able to um, bring a service to you in this way every week. Uh, and I trust that when we do return normally, those that cannot come uh, for whatever reason, uh, will still be able to access our content online because we still re will record the sermons um, when they're live. We'll record them and upload them whenever we are back live. But one thing that I want to say is that I know it has been comfortable for many of us to do church at a time that, that suits us whenever that may be. And it's also been comfortable to do it at home, to do it on our own terms and to do it um, you know, in a very casual setting. Uh, and some of us may have even enjoyed the break from coming out on a Sunday morning every week, coming along to church. Uh, but that is a season. And hopefully that season will conclude very soon. I really want to encourage you that that coming to church and fellowshiping, being vibrant family, is a really important and essential element of our Christian family, of our walk together. And so don't delay. When we can return to church, come along. Don't be lazy. Uh, don't, don't fall into that trap of uh, being satisfied with the unremarkable. I mean, church online compared to church you know, face to face, church online, by comparison, is unremarkable because there's just something special that happens when you fellowship with other believers. And so don't miss out. Uh, I really encourage you 
as we uh, head out into this week ahead to do so with great joy and confidence in the Lord. And uh, may you also not settle for the unremarkable, but be available to God. Blessings to everyone. Thank you.